why have I stayed at $5,000 a month? I think there's, this is an important lesson to be learned here. Um, and it's a little bit difficult to explain, honestly, but um, it's first worth mentioning to you that the amount of, you know, you ultimately land at will be different for each of you. Uh, just based on, you know, what you deem to be a good income, how fast you can work and how much stress you're willing to endure and how many hours you're willing to work. Um, but you see, I, I could charge $8,000 a month, $10,000 a month starting tomorrow, and I bet you I could still get clients pretty easily. So why don't I do that? Well, if I did that, my stress levels would have would rise, you know, equally. <laughs> um, I'd feel as though I need to provide that much more value than I'm already providing, which I already feel like I'm providing a lot of value. And I'd constantly be questioning whether I was falling short. Um, I want, at the end of the day, DesignJoy to feel like it's a good deal. So even if I, you know, fall short one day, it's not a big deal. Um, that's just how I like to operate. But if I was charging $10,000 a month and I had an off day here or there, I got sick, I, I mean, I couldn't stomach that. I wouldn't feel right about it. It all goes back to stress, the stress you're willing to endure and what, you're, what you feel more, most comfortable charging based on what you're able to deliver and what will allow you to sleep well at the end of the day. Because I can tell you that there is a direct relationship between how much you charge and how much stress there is involved. It's not something that's bad, um, but it's something to be aware of. And I think there's a sweet spot that you should hope to achieve. All that to say, though, the biggest mistake I see services making is charging too little. It's one thing to do it at the beginning just for the sake of getting clients. But to stay there while you're, con while you're continuing to land clients is... The biggest mistake that I made, I think, of all the mistakes I made. So for those of you, again, I like to give you concrete things. I'm sure some of you are hoping for a number, like for me to tell you where to charge, what to charge. If I had to do that, I would say charge anywhere between $2,000 and $2,500 a month starting out. That is, you know, a mere $24,000 a year, which is, I would say, insanely cheap. Um, it's insanely cheap, especially if you, again, compare that to what a normal designer costs. Um, but it's, it's, it's still enough to where, it, you know, it, it makes it probably worth your time. And most importantly, it's going to attract people to your service. Now, let's say you sign up three or four clients at that rate, take it to $3,000 immediately. Sign on a couple more, take it to $4,000. If you keep signing on more, Increase it, again, to that point where you feel comfortable charging them based on what you're able to deliver. Because take it from me, you'd be surprised by how much clients are actually willing to pay for decent work. Um, I think real talent is much more rare than people actually realize. And it's even harder to obtain that real, client, real, that real talent. So definitely don't sell yourself short and do like I did and leave thousands of dollars Building on the table. Building a strong, vibrant, attractive portfolio is seriously one of the best things you can do to increase your chances of succeeding here. So how do you do it? It's really quite easy and the trick is not to overthink it, just like everything else in this course. Um, but a lot of people do get stuck here. They think, well, I just launched my service. How do I showcase work when I don't have any clients? There's a few things you can do. First off, most of us have worked for... Uh, previous roles, um, some of which we can share. And when I say can share, I mean, you're legally and ethically able to. Um, in other words, if you have worked from a previous agency and you're, you know, basically creating a competitor, it's best to stay away from showcasing your work that you did there. But let's say there is no conflict of interest. 
there's nothing wrong with showcasing the work you did for previous employers. Uh, if you're freelancing at the moment and you already have work, you're done. You have what you need, pretty cut and dry, showcase that. But if you have neither, that's that's where I found myself. Um, I had done a ton of design work in the past, but none of which I was really that proud of. And it wasn't really sexy and I didn't really want to showcase that. So what did I do? I made up projects. I did. I took on fake clients, made fake, fake design briefs. I just made the whole thing all up. Um and the great thing about doing this is there's no limits put on your creativity. You can do whatever the hell you want and really show off and flex your skills um, better than what, what would come of, of restrictions placed on you by higher-ups. Um, it's great and something that I would encourage you to do, honestly, whether you have real work or not. Uh, most clients, you know... They don't care if the company actually exists. They just want to see that you can do the things that you claim you can do. Um, but how do you go about this? Uh, how do you think of these projects to do? One method that I've found to make this easier, at least as a designer, is to go to a, a platform like ProductHunt.com. I'd pick a project there. I'd either redesign their logo or their brand or their website or even their product sometimes. Just a screen. Um, and I'd give it some fictitious name. Um, this not only helps build a strong portfolio, but it also helps sharpen your skills at the same time. But you don't need to go super far here. In other words, you don't need to show all of your cards. You'll notice that when you look at DesignJoy, I only show a small thumbnail per project on my homepage. And even my portfolio only consists of you know one web page per site. You won't see any written content or case studies pertaining to them, just enough to make the user excited and validate that I can actually do what I claim to do. And to be honest with you, I'm rarely asked for any more. So that's the key. Just like everything taught in this course, simplicity is it. And if you don't have the experience to build a strong portfolio, create that experience for yourself by coming up with these fake Understanding projects. what clients are excited about and what they're not is such a huge part of pitching your service. Um, and luckily for you, I've had years of experience doing this. So I've gotten pretty good at it, pretty good at understanding what clients actually care about and the things they don't. Now, the list is pretty long, but I do want to focus in on one particular aspect that I found to be pretty important when talking to people interested in signing up. The first thing I usually talk about um, is the actual you know, subscription itself, the nature of it, how it works. This is you know, obviously the draw, uh, the thing that usually grabbed somebody's attention and drew them to you in the first place. Um, so I, you know, I start out by telling how, how it works, how the design queue works, um, which by now, hopefully you understand. But I really hone in on one aspect of the subscription, and that's the ability to pause and cancel at any time. Now, you might be thinking, why would you even bring this up? Um, after all, we don't want clients to pause, and we certainly don't want them to cancel. But put yourself in their shoes. <laughs> they're looking at a very nuanced service that they're likely not already familiar with, and it a, has a $5,000 price tag. That's pretty scary for most people. Um, and, you know... It's important at this point to make clients feel comfortable moving forward with you and as if there's no strings attached. Unlike traditional retainers, we aren't contractually locking them in to anything longer than a single month, and this is a pretty big selling point. So giving the client the freedom to part ways with you without jumping through a bunch of hoops is a pretty big deal and makes them far more, more receptive to trying you out. So let's talk about the pausing feature of DesignJoy. This is, I would say, one of the top three selling points of my service. 
So it's a pretty, again, a pretty big deal. And it took me some, it took me four years to implement. And in turn, I cannot tell you how many tens of thousands of dollars I probably left on the table. So what would happen is clients would come to DesignJoy and not have enough work to actually make sense to pay for an entire month. Maybe they just had something small they needed to get done. In other words, it's kind of like a one-off request. And so I didn't do one-off requests. I'd turn them away. I didn't, you know, I I wouldn't even entertain taking them on um, and refunding them for the time that they didn't utilize. This is one of the biggest mistakes I made. And then four years later, I finally had an epiphany that, hey, I could handle these sorts of projects, but under the umbrella of a subscription, if I just allowed them to pause their account and p- but pay up front, um, which is key. So how does this work? Let's, let's say a client needs a deck design done in two weeks, but really doesn't have anything lined up after that. With DesignJoy, they could sign up for an entire month, pay me $5,000 up front, use my services for two weeks, and then pause their account when that request is done. Now, in theory, they've essentially banked an additional two weeks of service, which can be used at any point in the future. They don't have to waste remaining time because they don't have any more work. And for you, you get all the money up front anyway, so why would it matter? Um, this is perhaps, again, the one of the biggest selling points of DesignJoy, aside from the quality and speed that I offer. Um, and when I tell clients about this feature, you can see the expression on their face like, wow, this has got 100 times better, and it was pretty dang attractive before. So why does it make it so much better? Because business is unpredictable. Some months you could have a lot of work and be making tons of money, and some months it could be the opposite. And having a resource in the design field that can move with you through those highs and lows is everything to a lot of people. It gives that client that peace of mind they need to bring you on, reduces the hesitancy they have, and they don't have to assume the risk if things go south. And in turn, that means you get more clients trusting you and choosing you over some not so flexible options. And the only and call it's really I ever offer clients is a 15 minute call prior to them signing up. You can go to the Zenjo site and book this call, and it's all done through Calendly. But I offer four slots per week, and they're usually filled up. Now, I know the title of this lesson is the 15 minute sales call because honestly, I didn't know what else to call it. But it's not really a sales call so much. It's really more of an opportunity for clients to ask any questions that they have. And at the same time, perhaps even more importantly, it's an opportunity for me to feel whether they're a good fit for my service or not. This is crucial not only for me, but for clients as well in order to save them time and hassle. Uh, Because it's important, you know, as product service owners to not allow toxic clients to filter in and make their way into our world and disrupt it. Um, And if your website isn't clear enough to weed these people out, this 15-minute call is sort of a second layer of security, if you want to think about it that way. And so they ask their questions, and I ask my questions. I ask them what type of work they need to ensure um, that it fits within my wheelhouse as something I can do fairly quickly and easily. I ensure they're okay with my communication style and that they're okay not jumping on meetings, like, ever. Uh, I'm sure they don't have some crazy deadline that they need to meet that I'm unable to execute. I try to get an idea of their budget if they have one. It's important for me to know if they only have a budget for, let's say, a single month so I can help guide them into getting the most out of the subscription and prioritizing their requests. Um, And by doing these things, you minimize, and I mean greatly minimize, the possibility of a client signing up with drastically different expectations from what you offer. Um, And when I say I I don't treat this like a sales call, that's a pretty big understatement. Um, Because I'm here to help them. I'm not so biased 
that I think Design Joy is the only great design option out there. And in fact, in a lot of cases, there's better options. Maybe it's um, hiring an in-house designer or going a traditional agency route or working with someone even on Fiverr. I'm not shy about this fact, and um, I, I'm not I'm, I'm not hesitant to send people elsewhere if they can be better served or if they're just not a good fit for me. Um, and I'm fortunate that I don't need clients, so um, I don't have to think twice about this, but I understand that not everyone's in that position, so you won't be able to do this as as easily as I will. But at the end of the day, you're, help, you're here to help them whether you're the solution or not. And chances are, if again, if your website is as good as DesignJoy's, they're probably already sold and mainly just want to touch base with you personally, talk about some logistics or specific things around your model. Um, so don't feel like you have to waste too much of your time overselling what, you, what you're offering. Use it instead as a time to validate whether they're, they're a good fit and um managing payments yeah, i'm not going to uh pretend to be an expert in this i'm literally only speaking from my experience here for whatever it's worth but it's probably no surprise to you that i've chosen stripe as my payment gateway of choice and to me it's really not even close i mean there's a reason why a quarter of a million companies use it um but in my experience it's been super reliable really easy to set up handles automatic payments really well, has a subscription piece to it, uh, and those subscriptions are really easy to manage, so it really ticks all the boxes. Um, and I integrate it by way of a tool called MemberStack. So this is a free shout-out to MemberStack. I'm not getting paid for it. They're not a sponsor. Um, but I love the platform, and it's allowed me the possibility of doing what I do and making it really effortless for clients, which is equally as important. Um, but they're just at the top of their game in terms of, I think, supplying a payment system for specifically for product as service owners where subscriptions are so um, central. And the beauty of it is they, they integrate with Webflow, which is the platform that I use, and the integration is so freaking seamless. Um, but if you don't use Webflow, they also integrate with platforms like WordPress. And while I can't speak for those particular integrations and how easy they are to implement it, a quick glance at the documentation does appear as though it's a similar steps. So I wouldn't be scared. It's really, really easy, and they have literally such phenomenal documentation to help you step-by-step step through the process, even if you're not technical. So if I can do it, you can do it. But essentially, MemberStack is, think of it like a, layered, a layer between your website and Stripe that handles the membership portion of your site. Um, the best way I can think of describe it is, is, like, is really to walk you through the DesignJoy experience. So... Um, member stack again is plugged into to, to uh, Webflow, so you actually never leave my site. Webflow just provides an interface and a connection point to Stripe. Um, but you pick a plan on on DesignJoy's uh, you know landing page, and it takes you to a create account page. This is still a, a you know a Webflow form, and the information you put in there, member stack takes and transfers over to Stripe. But you're in Webflow the whole time. You never leave. When you enter your account details and hit sign up again, MemberStack pushes this data to Stripe to create a customer. A payment form pops up on your screen. Now this is MemberStack, this is the MemberStack UI. It asks you for your basic billing information, you click the pay button, the client's charge, a, sub a subscription is created in Stripe. And from this point on, you don't need to do anything else. Stripe will automatically charge the client when, they, when their account renews. 
um, or at least until they log in and cancel. Now, that login happens directly on your site again. MemberStack provides the interface to do this, which is super awesome, and that UI is already built out for you. It's literally just kind of like an iframe. Uh, I would encourage you to go through this process on DesignJoy to see what, see what the experience looks like because it's not complicated at all, obviously without signing up, um, but you can at least see the, the you know, part of the process. But the point is, it's incredibly easy. You can, you know, um, you can, you know, log in the member stack. You can see your uh, your subscriptions or your subscribers manage their accounts if you need to. Um, but it's also worth mentioning too that you, you know, you can also do do this directly in Stripe, which is the way that I do it. Uh, once I set a member stack, I really don't ever go back in unless I update my plans for whatever reason. But um, I, yeah, I, I haven't logged into member stack in forever. Now, the only downside to MemberStack, if you want to go this route, is the fees. Um, you're charged double fees. You pay MemberStack a fee per charge, um, and then you pay Stripe a fee as well. And depending on your plan, you're charged a different percentage, plus a, fl uh, you know, a flat monthly platform fee for MemberStack. And when you're charging $5,000 a month uh, per charge, the fees definitely add up, believe me. But uh, to me, the client experience is worth that cost. As a customer, I appreciate being able to access my own account on your own terms and cancel and downgrade whenever I please. But you, you may not care much that much about that, and if that's the case, you should just skip member stack altogether and send them straight to a Stripe checkout page. You can easily create a product in Stripe, set the price to reoccurring, and create a checkout page in one click. Um, and you can bypass the member stack interface and its fees altogether, and, no, and uh, you know the client will have to reach out to you if they need to make a change to their account, which may be a turnoff to some people, but it may not be a deal breaker. So... Without getting too far into the technical side of MemberStack and how to actually add it to your to your site, I'll sort of leave that out and direct you to their documentation. It's just MemberStack.com. And you know, while there's more than one platform out there that definitely does similar things, my experience you know lies here, and I can personally vouch for the platform. I'm not going to vouch for a platform that I've never used. And I've done millions of revenue through them uh, with you know very few, if if any at all, hiccups. So give it a look, and if it seems like something that could work so out for you, there's several it. ways to technically upsell clients depending on how you structure your business. But I'll tell you one way that made me the most money, and that's simply increasing the output of that what I provide them. So what does this actually look like? It's usually an agency who really enjoys my service and they just want more of it. I mean, agencies are synonymous with working with multiple clients and having multiple different initiatives going on at any given time. And the one requested a rule time that operate that DesignJoy operates under, in some cases, just isn't sufficient to handle like all their needs. So, yeah, being restricted to that one one request at a time uh, just doesn't work for them. And having the flexibility and the option to have multiple tasks going on going on at any given time is something that clients do sometimes need. So that's the upsell. You simply sell them more concurrent requests and that's it and how you do this is up to you i typically provide a 20 percent discount per additional pipeline and by pipeline i mean concurrent requests uh so it's essentially like you're just signing up for an additional account at a discount and it's a pretty big discount and i've had clients before sign up for as much as six which at the time with that my current pricing at, at that time was about twenty thousand dollars a month um so it's pretty it's a pretty good bump in extra income and the beauty of these uh, you know, additional accounts is they can be treated just like your main account in which you can pause and cancel them, turn them on and off as clients 
needs, you know, increase or decrease. So if they go through a period of time where they have a lot of work, they can just add additional requests on. And if all of a sudden additional work ceases, then they can turn them off. So you give clients the ability to scale up and scale down as their own needs do, and you make way more money in the process. So I typically don't list this on my site. This isn't something I tell them about. This is something I usually tell them about on the 15-minute call that I have with them prior to signing up. But I wouldn't necessarily say it's something that many clients take advantage of that often. A, it's very expensive. Um, and B, the output that they get from a normal subscription usually is sufficient for their needs. But nonetheless, it's a really good thing to have in your toolbox if you ever do come across a client who is just really in love with what you're doing, but just, or, you know, they, they, they have a big desire to just get more of it and get more of your time. This is something that you can offer clients. Them. Uh, this is, I do, I do this quite differently, uh, than a lot of other agencies. I'm sure that's not the first time I've said this during this course. I pretty much do everything differently. Everything that I do about with design joy is, is designed specifically to take away anything that I personally have to do outside of just pure design work. So everything is as automated as I can make it and as easy at the same time for customers to accomplish. And onboarding is no different. So I'll, I thought I'd be, you know, it'd be worthwhile for me to just quickly walk you through the whole onboarding process of design joy so that maybe you can emulate it in any way that you see fit. And it's, it's it, like I said, it's pretty dang simple. There's not a whole lot to it. There's not any sort of like wow factor about this. You're, I'm going to probably finish and be like, oh, that's it? So um, without further ado, let me do that. So clients will sometimes, uh, this is usually the, you know, they'll, they'll visit the site, and I do offer, I don't do any meetings post-signing up, but I do offer a 15-minute touch base for those looking to sign up, perhaps these have some questions before they <laughs> uh, charge their card, you know, several thousand dollars without speaking to a human being. Um, so they'll go to the site. They'll usually some most most clients do book a call every once in a while. You'll get this baller that just drops the money out of nowhere and signs up. But generally speaking, they will book a call, and in that call, I have a, you know, I'll have another section entirely dedicated to this. Perhaps it's been before or after this particular lesson. Um, but in short, it's, it's basically just an opportunity for me to field who they are and if they're a good fit, but also for them to ask me any outstanding questions they have before they sign up. The close rate of these calls are usually very, very high because they've gone through the trouble of booking a call and actually showing up, which means that they're obviously very much interested in it. Um, but they'll do that. That's kind of the first thing usually. And then I basically end that call by saying, all right, well, you know, when you're interested, when you're ready to sign up, if and when, help yourself out on the site. They can go to the site, they choose a plan, they enter their account information, email and login, make a payment. They're taken to a confirmation page that basically welcomes them to Design Joy and indicates that they should wait, you know, up to 24 hours to receive an invite to Trello, which is what I do. And I'll get into that in a second. And at the same time, they'll get a confirmation email. Um, I use campaign monitor for this. I think it's like eight bucks a month. Again, just further uh, reinforcing what the next steps are, which is basically that they wait for a Trello invite from me. Now from there, I'll get the notification that a client signed up. This will come from Stripe. 
Um, I'll go into Trello. I have basically a demo board set up in there, which is an empty board with the columns pre preset. So I have my onboarding cards, which again will be featured in another portion of this course that again may or may, may be before or after this one. Um, and they'll I'll basically just duplicate that board, send them an invite to it. They get the invite, they accept it, they're in. They're onboarded. There's nothing else. My only act of actually onboarding clients is taking that 15-minute call if they book it, and then if they sign up, just duplicating that board takes literally 15 seconds to do and then shoot them an invite. From there, they accept it. They log in, and they see the onboarding cards there, which, again, I'll illustrate in another lesson. Um, but everything is spelled out to them there, and they have everything they need. They can drop their branding assets if they need to, and um, basically everything's explained. I don't have to touch base with them whatsoever. Now, if they do sign up, you know, I usually sometimes will send them a, a, my own personal note via email just indicating that, they, that they're in and ask them any questions if they need it. But I may do this, I don't know, two out of ten times. Usually I don't do anything at all. And that's it. That's all the onboarding consists of. Um, I think... And, that, and that's a key part of DesignJoy's other services do stuff similar to DesignJoy, but their onboarding can take a few days, really, because they jump through so many hoops. They usually have like an onboarding call and go through their branding assets and go through what their needs are. I pretty much open the gate to whoever and let them make their way through it. And I can tell you from running this for many, many years, I've had I can count probably on one hand the number of clients who have gotten stuck in this process who are or who have potentially landed on the Trello board and had questions on how it works. So I would I recommend following suit with the way that DesignJoy does it. Um, and yeah, it's pretty much that simple. There's not much more question to it. that probably people get stuck on more than just about anything. I think this is the million dollar question for any service based business or or freelancer, where do you, you know, where do I get my clients? Um, and before I go into all of that, I think it's it's worthwhile to just pause for a moment and really drive home how just important it is to ensure that your top of funnel is extremely solid before you waste any time, any money whatsoever trying to land clients. And what I see so often is that entrepreneurs will just spin up a quick website. It'll very much look like an MVP, like you're just testing the waters, but you're not so bought in that you're willing to invest in making it visually appealing and, and easy to understand. And they'll go out and spend a bunch of money running a bunch of ads and their conversions are zip, zero. And they uh, just, they just assume that maybe the model is broken. Maybe it's not attractive. When in reality, your top of funnel wasn't set up to handle traffic and convert them into paying customers. It happens literally all the time. People get so fixated on how do I get my customer to, let me make sure that my funnel is set up for when I do get in contact with the customer, they filter through it properly and in, in turn you know, come out a paying customer. So that's the disclaimer. Because I don't want you... What I don't want you doing is neglecting that and then saying, oh, well, these methods didn't work for me. So without further ado, let's dive into some of those methods that worked for me. And then I'll mention, 
a couple of others that I haven't necessarily tried myself, but I'm familiar with doing this for a while. Um, and I've coached others to do it. And some of these that I'll mention, oh, I'll be honest, are very cliche. Some of them you might roll your eyes on. And some of them maybe you've never heard of. But I, I feel like the best thing for me to do is be honest with you and tell you exactly the way that I've done it. And take what you want from it, and like like I always say, take what you want and forget what you what you or what you don't. Um, so the reality is, I launched Design Joy very haphazardly. I was very naive to w- what was actually going to take place. Uh, so I did the typical product hunt launch. Um, I, <clears throat> without going into too much detail, because I could probably do a whole episode just on product hunt. Um, I was moderately successful on there. And did get enough upvotes to get pushed to, I think it was the top four product of the day, um, which resulted in somewhere around 35 or 36,000 unique visits. Um, it kept me up for 48 hours straight. And it gave my, my business basically an instantaneous boost in attention. And several publications picked it up and blogs picked it up and Word of mouth soon spread, and they featured me on their emails and social, and you just get all kinds of exposure when you when you are successful on there. Um, and the rest from there was pretty much history. Again, it was like got my first client within probably a couple of hours of being live on there, and got I don't know several dozen clients after that for the first year, year and a half. Um, and I didn't do anything else for probably, again, like probably a year and a half or two years. And at that point, once that was, once that was sort of over, um, that's when I learned, that's when I leaned into communities and, uh, started posting there. And, um, if you know anything about building in public, it's, it's a really good strategy to get people really bought into what you're doing, especially if you're doing something that is actually unique. So I did a mix of not only contributing to conversations and help helping others out along their way of building some, some, you know, things similar, but I also shared my own struggles and wins while building DesignJoy. I did this on platforms like Indie Hackers and Slack groups and Facebook groups. Um, everything outside of Indie Hackers was usually focused around productized services. There's a whole productized service community out there, if you don't know that. Um, And so joining those communities and being around like-minded people, but doing similar things, not only helped me learn a lot and uh, save myself a lot of of troubles, but again, allowed me to share what I was doing with Design Join, and a lot of people just so happened to be very interested and bought into my journey. So when I hit a new revenue milestone or maybe I found a, a unique way to get clients, I would share it on there and people loved it. Um, and it just so happened that these people that loved my content also were in the process of building businesses themselves. So they ran businesses themselves and everyone needs design help, right? So they would come to me. 95% of my early clients were other bootstrappers doing very similar things to me. No, not necessarily always in the productized space, but they were, you know, single solo founders and things like that um, that existed in these communities I was in. Another fun way that I got clients, which 
I've never actually heard anyone suggest this as a way to get clients, but I think it works really, really well for service-based industries. Um, was landing page inspiration sites. So the DesignJoy website design does attract a lot of people. I think it makes a lot of people happy. It's, it's very vibrant and different. And it looks really good. So I would frequently publish it to just about every landing page inspiration site I could find. And I got a lot of clients this way and a lot of traffic. In fact, it's been probably two or three years since I've published anything there. I still get traffic to this day. Um, and the, the reason why is because those people visiting these sites are obviously interested in usually upgrading their own. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there in the first place. So if they browse through a library of, of the best design landing pages and they came across DesignJoy, caught their eye, they still happen to notice it's a design agency. It's what I call a match made in heaven. Simple as that. And again, this is completely free. doesn't cost a dime. Anyone can do it. But now in order for yours to actually be accepted by the site owner and then, and then actually rise to the top of the most popular charts and things like that, it obviously needs to be good. But everyone technically has it in their power to make that reality if you can do it yourself or you can hire someone who can. Um, but definitely don't sleep on sites like this. It's, you know, the second to last thing that I'll talk about that I did personally was created a few micro-resources. A couple of them never went really anywhere, but there was this one called Scribbles, which many of you will be familiar with if you follow me for any amount of time. It was just a result of a 24-hour project that ended up doing really well, long story short. Um, I promote Design jo or Scribbles on the DesignJo site, and I likewise promote DesignJo on the Scribbles site and get a lot of cross-traffic cross um, from both. And so um, I'm able to leverage all the traffic that Scribble gets on its own for its own reasons and point that traffic to DesignJoy. Um, and it's great when you can build resources like this because you can leverage the same methods listed above to promote it as well and crossing to your own service, for example... You know, it's usually shunned upon to promote your service more than once on product time unless you get major updates. But there's nothing that says, you know, I can't promote DesignJoy this day and then, you know, two months later I'll promote this product, which links to DesignJoy. Um, so you can do that an infinite number of times and, again, cross-reference traffic. So what does this look like to you? I mean, if you're a developer, maybe it's some, some templates or if you're a video editor, maybe it's some um, video effects. If you're a designer, maybe it's just some UI kits or something like that, um, you can think about like creating almost like a lab within your service that produces resources for clients and non-clients to utilize in the same way that, you know, companies use white papers or things like that, that it just helps them capture a different audience that they may have not captured otherwise. So now that brings me to today. Um, Twitter has kind of taken over my business and to be quite honest with you, I'm not an expert on this topic, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you five ways to grow a Twitter audience and how to convert that audience into paying customers. There's someone that can do that far better than me, and I don't pretend to necessarily be an expert in that whatsoever. In fact, I'm fairly new to it. But I can tell you without a doubt, Twitter it has massive interest in product and services. Um, after all, that's probably where you found me. And most, if not all, my traffic nowadays comes from Twitter which is another advantage of building an audience and sharing the ins and outs of your business in public. So in addition to all of these, in addition to the methods listed previously, um, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are kind of wondering about cold outreach and 
does it work here? To be honest with you, I'm not a big fan of this option because as a recipient of a lot of cold outreach, nothing screams more impersonal than getting a message that basically they just changed their first name and make it try to seem personal when it's obvious that I was one of probably a hundred people that got this message. Most most people are just really, really bad at it. But there's one method that I've actually tried in the past at, at previous roles that worked really well. I think the key here is to find clients that are actively looking for help from someone like yourself versus someone that's mass blasting emails out there to every potential client under the sun. And the best way that I've found to do this is to actually go to job boards and find companies hiring for the skill that you sell. So if you're a designer, find companies actively hiring designers and pitch them your service. Tell them about all the alternatives and why it's so much better than hiring someone internally. You might have to reach out to them via email or LinkedIn or Twitter. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get a hold of people nowadays. But the important thing here is that you're actually actually spending your time targeting people who are at that very moment looking for someone like you. And maybe they just don't know you exist. In fact, they probably don't know you exist. They probably don't know productized services exist. So it's really easy to pique people's interest when you have something as attractive as something like DesignJoy. So... I'm not saying that this is going to work for everyone. I can't say that I've done it at scale, but it does seem like a logical approach to me and and a way better option than randomly emailing a bunch of companies which you know nothing about. Now, all I have to say, these are all methods that exist outside of the realm of traditional marketing. And, you know, with traditional marketing, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and if, if all these methods fail for you, it's something that you can always fall back on. And the thing that most companies rely on day to day anyways, to be successful and to find clients. Um, but I can tell you, and I can tell you most of the, most of my competitors aren't doing the things I listed above and they seem to be just doing just fine. Um, doing things like YouTube ads and Facebook ads. They're all proven methods that work. And again, while I'm not an expert in these fields, I will give you one piece of advice, which is hire someone who actually is. Because the thing, the thing about ad tools nowadays is they're so user-friendly, they kind of make anyone think that they can be an expert at it. I mean, they make targeting so easy and targeting people by interests and behaviors. And the UI of it is phenomenal. But if you've ever hired someone who actually does these things for a living you'll never go back to doing them yourself. There is something to be said about someone who knows the ins and outs of these tools and knows how to A-B test and create efficiencies for you to spend less and get more um, and targeting and behaviors and interests. I mean, there's, I've, I've personally experienced this. I used to think that I could do all these things because, they, again, they make it seem as though you can. That's the one piece of advice that I would give you is like, don't, don't be afraid to hire someone on a contract basis or even share revenue with them um, instead of paying them up front to actually do these things for you if you end up having to do them. I would try the way that I've approached all my businesses. I've tried to never spend a dime with any of my businesses. I've created several in the past. Some of them have been very successful. Never spent a dime. I always try to make my way through it without doing that. But some of you might have to and maybe you're very good at these things. I would definitely suggest doing it. So as always, Take from this list what you want and disregard the things that you are not interested in. Or maybe give them all a try and don't forget that when I started out, don't forget that when you start out, 
um, the top of funnel and making sure that is you know as solid as can be is is definitely your first priority um, because at that point your dollars and the efforts that you spend will just take you so, so much further. Um, request format is something that is definitely worth discussing. I think a lot of people are curious about how I intake requests and I think a lot of people assume I have you know some sort of form that that clients fill out and that's the way that most people do it. Uh, I again <laughs> I do I do the opposite. I, I pretty much my approach to this is to not have any rules whatsoever and to really lean on the client to make that decision. And you know the way that I do this is the reason why I do it this way I have, I I do a whole host of different request types of design joy. Any anything from logos and branding to landing page design all the way to like product, you know, software design. There's not really a form out there that I could construct that would capture all the information I need across all of these different things. And I don't want to pigeonhole people into filling, you know, to a and it's not it's not a cookie cutter type of thing. So, I have kind of the attitude that I'll put it on the client to you know, convey their design requirements to me in whatever format they see possible. And if it becomes an issue that I'm not able to con- to to understand the format of which they are requesting their their design work, then I'll, I'll address it then. But again, I can count on probably two hands the number of times that's actually happened. So it usually goes pretty well. Um, I give clients options though. So I usually tell them, you know, request in whatever format you, you're comfortable with and that whatever format is easiest for you. I'll have some clients, this is most clients, will just honestly input the information directly into Trello. Uh, sometimes it'll be just something as short as like a title of a description, like a, we need a Twitter cover graphic, no description whatsoever. Other clients will put pretty extensive, you know, marked up descriptions inside of Trello, which is great, links out to different resources and things that are referenced within the brief. I have other clients who... You will host their requests, uh, request requirements outside of Trello. Like maybe it's a Google Doc. They'll I have the rule that like it can be anything as long as it's a link to in Trello. So they'll link to the Google Doc in Trello, and I'll just click it and open it and and consume it there. My favorite type, um, other than just the explicit writing out in Trello and being brief, is uh, Loom. So Loom is a big big part of my world. I'll talk about this in my tech stack lesson but a lot of my clients will just send you know two or three minute loom video i instruct them ahead of time to keep keep it short and keep it brief and to the point and so sometimes it'll just be a loom video that i get so i've gotten pretty good at being flexible on this and again clients do it different ways in whichever ways they see fit some of them do a mix of things um but the you know i guess the bottom line is i don't really have rules around request formats which again it's contrary to the way a lot of people would would probably run a business like this, but as as I always say, like it works for me, it works for my clients, and I like giving them that option and flexibility to do that instead of approaching this in a very cookie cutter fashion. So Many there you go. People have the wrong idea of how productized services actually work, and partially it's it's our fault because we like to use the word unlimited. Um, most people can't really wrap their head around the unlimited aspect of it and what it actually means and how it actually works. 
Um, and it's funny because I get this more often from other designers than I do actually clients because I think their skepticism towards something new and the fact that they don't actually take the time to understand how it works contributes to that. But by unlimited, all we really mean is you won't be charged based on time spent or per project. And in theory, you could use the service as much or as little as you want, and you're still going to be charged the same rate as the, as the other person. So you can kind of think about it a little bit like a Netflix subscription. So let's pretend for a moment you have you know the same plan, uh, two people have the same plan, let's call it 15 bucks a month, and if I watch you know 20 shows in a month, um, I'm charge 15 bucks if the other person <laughs> fails to even log into netflix and not even watch a single show they're still charged 15 dollars a month and while it's technically unlimited you could sit there all day long and watch shows you can only do so one at a time uh and that's kind of how services like design joy work it's the only way services like design joy works so while you can request in theory as many designs as you want there can only be one in progress at any given time. Now, I personally allow my clients to manage their own design queue, design queue, which means that they have total freedom to move item around, move items around in their queue whenever they want. So, whether a request was just submitted or perhaps I'm halfway through uh, with a request, a client has the total freedom to switch priorities. Uh, whenever they please, but they just can never have one more, one more than one in progress. Now, for some of you, you already knew this, but I think for others of you, I think this was one of those moments where a light bulb's probably going off, and you're thinking, "Wow, this makes so much more sense." Now, later on, there are some exceptions to this rule that I'll that I'll mention, um, and by exception, I mean you know there's more opportunities to sell multiple requests at a time, and we'll get into that later. But hopefully you have a better understanding of how this whole unlimited model actually works. All right, works. so I wanted to address the way that I communicate with clients. I think a lot of people can look at this and think, that's a little dangerous to operate that way. And I actually thought it would be as well. And then I just learned the benefits of it. But my, my communication style is really at a minimum when it comes to clients. A lot of times they'll request a design and there won't be any communication that happens in, in between um, getting that request and actually completing the work. And then of course, you know, subsequent communication occurs after the request is completed and we go back and forth on maybe it's feedback or something. So I don't want to make it seem like there's zero communication ever. It's just, I communicate when necessary. I don't send, you know, just text updates. It says, you know, this is in the work still or this or that it's any communication that I have. It usually looks like this. All right, here's the, here's it. This is done. Uh, here's a link to it. Let me know what you think. That's that's nine out of ten times the message that I send. And then even when they provide feedback to me, it usually looks like, all right, I just made those changes. Here you go. So there's not there's not a lot of communication. Um, there are occasionally times when there are there, there's just more context that needs to be added behind a certain decision that I made from a design standpoint. And I don't neglect those those times, and I, I I understand them. I understand that it's important to provide that context, and so I just personally I'd I don't like typing a lot, so I just record it in Loom. I keep it you know very brief, two to three minutes of my time, and send it their way. I'll share my my screen and whatnot, and that's how I'll sort of add color and context behind some bigger designs design you know decisions, which typically occur when I'm doing like prog design or something that looks a little bit more complex. Usually like logos or landing pages, they're just like, hey, here you go. It's pretty self-explanatory. 
But you know, I will say to to operate this way and to not not communicate very often does warrant the necessity of you actually got to be able to be good at what you do and you've got to be fast at it. You know, if there's seven days in between requesting a design and getting it and I didn't communicate with the client in between, that wouldn't go over very well for most people. But because I, I have, you know, iterate very quickly and usually there's only 24 hours or 48 hours between getting requests, there's not really, you know, a lot of need to communicate a lot during that time period because it's so short. So you have to operate that way. If you don't operate that way, you know, not only you're not, you know, performing well on timelines and things like that, but you're also not communicating and it's kind of a, a double-edged sword at that point. Uh, not going to work out good for you. But this is all kind of in an effort. It's not, you know, for for me, it just it actually creates more work for myself because I, I have just more more time to do work. But for the client, it actually works out for them too because instead of hopping on calls with clients and getting stuck in hour-long meetings, I, I can dedicate all of my time to designing, which ultimately results in just more output for them. So it's not just about you. None of this is just about you. Everything that I basically state in this course that benefits you in turn also benefits the clients, which is kind of a, a, a nice thing. So I hope that makes sense. Um, take Again, take from this what you will. If you want to do a hybrid model where you do communicate with clients frequently and you send them updates and you, you actually confirm you get requests, you can do that. None, none of that will necessarily make or break your business here. I just wanted to share what I've done because I think it'll surprise a lot of people that it actually works so well. But again, make your own decision. Requests, and, uh, that's um, this is, uh, uh, I think, you know, something that I've evolved on over the years and, and how I exactly do this. Um, I've done this to really a quite insane scale of, again, having up to, I think, at the height, 45 clients. So that was a lot of projects going on at a time. So I really had the opportunity to really refine the way that I manage projects. And the key here for this to work and to feel like the client's getting value that I've found is that they need to be getting fed work consistently, frequently, without big gaps in between. The normal path of hiring a freelancer, an agency, or even an in-house designer a lot of times is usually large periods of gaps uh, between a design need arising and actually getting it done. So if you can do the opposite and deliver it quickly, and if you can't even deliver the whole project, delivering it in chunks usually satisfies their appetite and in the case, if you're like a designer, for example, and there is a website design, continually and frequently giving them design updates keeps them satisfied. It keeps their developers busy. So that's the way that I do it. Now, at DesignJoy, I have what I call this sort of rule of thumb uh, that's like a two-day turnaround time. Now, I a typical request will be done within that time span. And what a typical request means to me is not going to be a typical request to you. So a typical request in a typical size would be a landing page or maybe it's a brand concept or a group of social media graphics. That's a typical request. I can usually get that done in two days. I'll deliver it in high fidelity. So I skip all of the normal steps you'd go through. I don't do any wireframing. I cut out basically all the BS and jump straight to the final product. That's how I'm able to get there so fast. And I'll deliver it usually in its entirety if it's, if it's again, a typical request. Now, 
I don't put any limits on my clients in terms of what constitutes a request. Some will take, let's say, a web project and break it into individual pages, and each, in, each individual page will have its own card in Trello, its own design brief, that sort of thing. And then I'll have other clients that will literally submit a single request that contains many parts to it, and that we could theoretically work on that request for a month or two um, total. So in the case that you're splitting it up between pages, they're going to experience the normal sometimes one day, usually two day turnaround time to get that done. But in the case that they submit a larger request, I mean, clients to a certain extent have to use common sense. So what I do is I basically split it up into what I consider like two day sprints. So I'll take a couple of days and get a little bit of that project done. I'll send it their way and I literally won't think about that again until a couple days later. I'll bring it back up, do a little bit more, send it to them. So they're getting it in intervals. Again, that keeps their appetite satisfied and keeps you know, their teams busy if it's something that they need to implement or whatever. Um, so you cannot cheat the system. You can't pack too much into a project. And again, instructing them to just use their common sense um, there are things, you know, any type of service requests are going to be fluid in nature and complexity in the time that it takes. And so you have to operate within the realm of reality. And, you know, I have kind of a rule where I don't personally spend more than an hour on a task. If I have to spend more than an hour, I will deliver what I've done in that hour. And when I say hour, I mean, that's very loose. Sometimes it might be 45 minutes. Sometimes it might be an hour and a half. And quite honestly, there's some days where it's very quiet and I will spend more time on certain requests than I usually do and I'll deliver more than I usually do. So I, there are certainly times that I over-deliver um, just, to, just to make it, you know, clients excited and kind of surprised, but I'll never under-deliver. Under so if there's days that I'm really busy, that just means I'm going to end up working longer hours. But, uh, you know, the thing to take away from this is try to, anything you deliver, try to make it something that's tangible. I don't do any sort of just text-based updates. Every, every update for me, every time they, I contact them, it's with an asset or a part of an asset that I'm working on for them. And I think that's the key to making this work and to make the client feel as though they're actually getting their value feedback. out of it happens pretty simply through Design Joy. First off, it's all done via Trello. Um, even though the source of the feedback can come from a number of different places, which I'll get into, the important thing is, and the requirement that I make with clients, is that feedback for a particular request needs to be done through the comment section of the Trello card. And again, remember a card equals a request. Now, Again, like I said, the source of the request can come from a few different places. Um, the you know most commonly, clients are pretty good at just typing it out in Trello directly. Uh, but occasionally, they'll a lot of them will record Loom videos. I, I said this several times. I try to train them to do this because it just helps. It helps bridge the gap between this very sort of impersonal type of engagement. 
Um, others will, since I'm a designer, I design with Figma, some of them will choose to comment in the Figma files, which is fine. Some will even construct their feedback into um, like a Google Doc or something like that. I kind of leave it open to however they want to do it, but the important thing is, is that they need to tell me in Trello that they've done this or that. Um, otherwise, you know, I could get a million different Figma notifications a day and have to sort through them, and it's very difficult to manage it that way. So they, I do require that they come in and tell me that they've left comments in Figma or done this or that, uh, and that's really it. I mean, there, there's, we can kind of go back and forth on the feedback as as much as we want at this stage. It's it's really up to them on how how long we stay in that phase of the project and. That's typically what prolongs projects the most. Um, but you'll notice too with this model because they're kind of under a time crunch because their subscription continu is continually running out for that month. You will notice, at least in my experience, clients won't really get hung up on too many small things like they normally would. Like <laughs> I'm sure you've probably been in a position where you've quoted a project for like let's say 500 bucks and you thought it goes smoothly and they get stuck on little things and just it prolongs it for months or weeks and you're just constantly tweaking and constantly updating it's not really that way here and the beauty of it is even if it is uh at least to me it's way easier to tweak a design than to start from scratch building another one so i don't i don't really mind when they get stuck on little things but it, it really doesn't happen that often. Um, but yeah, I think the important thing to note is that, you know, make sure that any feedback that is delivered anywhere ends up making its way into whatever product or platform that you're using to manage design requests. Like in my case, it's Trello. But, you know, emails won't work. External comments somewhere else won't work. Um, I suppose it could as long as, it, again, they link to it inside of Trello. So, so one way to that's really how I make this back. model work really well. And this is, you know, very controversial, especially amongst my peers and, and those in my industry. You have to make a lot of assumptions when it comes to requests. And the reason for that is we need to keep things moving forward. Everything we deliver needs to be tangible we cannot afford to go back and forth a lot, especially if you operate under a similar communication style as me where you're trying to minimize that as much as possible. You can delay projects for uh, easily a week just by going back and forth a little bit. Um, so the way, and you, you know, you can apply this if you're not a designer, you can, you know, take what you can from this and apply it to your own craft. But for me, you know, I operate what, what I call assumption-based design. So if a client requests something that, you know, there's definitely room for interpretation, the normal route would be for a designer to push back on them and to get more clarity and more details and Maybe it's a website and you don't have all the copy in place and maybe there's just some outstanding questions. That would The normal path would be to push back. What I do and what I found that works really, really well is just to make assumptions and I kind of look at it like, all right, if this were my, my website or my project, what would I do? 
and I'd rather go off and just design something and deliver it to them and get their feedback because most of the time it's pretty darn close to what they had in mind anyways. So I could have just wasted all my time getting the answers that I thought I needed or I could just execute it and get 90% there or 95% there and then just make some small tweaks and revisions. Now, the caveat here is that you need the experience to be able to make really good assumptions and the quality of your assumptions and the preciseness of them will directly be correlated to your overall experience and what you do. I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, even my my experience through Design and Joy alone, I've literally designed hundreds of websites and branded hundreds of companies. So my assumptions that I make on the design level might be different than what you make. And you, you'll adjust that as needed, but um, it definitely matters. Like experience definitely matters. But again, the key is like, I want to just drill this into your brain, like keep things moving forward. And unless absolutely necessary, do not block a project based on a gap of information. Just leave that part blank or fill in the gap yourself temporarily and just send it to them and get their feedback and then let that talk. Because you'll also realize too, if you've been in this industry for any amount of time, a lot of clients, whether you know, no, no matter what it is, they usually don't have a very good idea of what they want. And one way to get it out of them is to actually show them what you have, what, you, what you've created. Because it'll either tell them, all right, I don't want that, or yeah, that's actually really good. Let's go with that, and that might be 100% good, or they might just have small tweaks. So it's just a really good way of just continuing to move things forward. Everything should be in forward motion. Um, nothing should be, you know, blocked or delayed. You shouldn't have to go back and forth as, 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 you know, try, try to minimize that as much as, as humanly possible. And the experience for the client will just be so much better because of it. If you made it this far, congratulations. You've completed the course. I hope it wasn't too dreadful for you. I hope that you learned a lot and things are a lot more clear now. If there's one thing that I, I want to leave you with, and the, you know, the keep it simple lesson does a pretty good job at summarizing this. So I would encourage you, if there's one lesson to go back to and listen, it's that. But yeah, it's just the idea of simplicity and really cutting out all the BS that we're taught that we have to include in business practices and processes that we learn in school or are taught by people online. It's understanding what people are after, actually and not wasting your time doing things that don't really matter. So that's it. I hope that you have the information and the inspiration to go out and build this thing because I can tell you unequivocally, you know, 99 out of 100 of you probably won't actually move forward with this and release something. I hope that I hope that I'm wrong in that, but it's really easy to listen to a course, but I hope that this course has actually empowered you to actually act on it because that's the whole point here. If you have any questions for me, feel free to put them in the discussion form. This, again, is going to be an evolutionary course. It's not going to be a one and done, so I'm happy to add lessons or to add more context to specific parts of the course as you know they're told to me. So 
feel free to get involved there. And if there's anything that I can do a better job of or elaborate more thoroughly on, feel free to let me know. And I just wish you the best. I hope that this actually works out for you. I hope that you follow in my footsteps and gain such an incredible amount of financial freedom and do what you love and do it in a way that really suits your lifestyles and your desires. And that's really the the end goal here. So good luck to you. Thank you for partaking in this course. And I'll talk to you later.